apologize. This, uh, this Sunday evening was our second Sunday prayer service, and it totally slipped my mind, and so I didn't prepare for that, so maybe we may do that next time, but I, I apologize for that. If you would open your Bibles to John 13. John 13. Chapter 13 records for us the institution of the Lord's Supper, the observance of the Passover that Christ uh, had with His uh, apostles. And it gives the example of, or the, uh, uh, the account of Christ giving the sop to Judas and pointing out who would betray Him. Judas left, and after he left, Christ began to take that moment for a teaching moment and began to instruct His disciples. When we get down to verse 34 of chapter 13, He makes the statement, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are My disciples, if ye have love one to another. Love is a very complicated thing. In this world and in our culture especially, I guess the world over, we love everything. We love cars, we love animals, we love our favorite restaurants and foods, and we, we love certain types of clothing, and we love our families, our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents. We just love everything. Love is a very generic term in, uh, in our culture, isn't it? But it was a uh, somewhat of a generic term during the time of Jesus. But they had different words that we translate love. And when we look at Christ's statement, love one another, we have to understand what that means. We are to love one another. He said this is a commandment. He said He called it a new commandment. Now, a commandment is a prescribed rule in accordance with which a thing is done. And so he said, I'm going to give you a new commandment, a new prescribed rule. But really, we want to ask the question tonight, and this is what I've entitled the sermon, was it really new? Was the commandment really new? Well, it was new in that the love that he enjoined to them was different from what had previously been commanded for the people. The law of Moses contained an edict to love, Leviticus 19.18, but that was discharged through a very narrow set of limits. You were to love your neighbor. In the commandment Jesus discharged, it was new regarding its breadth. It was new regarding its width and its scope. So it was a new commandment in that sense. That was not new as not having ever been heard before. Christ had commanded to love one another. But He made the statement, Love one another as I have loved you. That was the new part, wasn't it? That was the part where the scope of it had been enlarged. Jesus commanded that we love as He loved. Now that's, that's quite a statement, isn't it? That's quite a commandment. That's quite a responsibility to place upon disciples. And that means that we are to love others because He loved us. And as much as, in, as it is possible, we are to match His love for others just as He loved us. 
The motivation behind the love, I think, is another aspect of it being new. What's the motivation behind it? Well, because Christ first loved us. We are therefore to love. And we're to do it with immeasurable and and limitless love. Because that's what He gave to us. We can't measure His love. We do not understand the limits to His love. We can't even understand really His love for us. Why would He love such a hateful people who sought and was successful in murdering Him? But we have to come to some kind of an understanding regarding His great love for us. I think what He is saying to His disciples is, You who are my disciples love each other. I think He's saying, You who believe in me love one another. You who are my followers love each other. You who are members of my church love one another. And when you do this, then the world will know that you are mine. In one aspect, it's a difficult task, but in another, it's not so difficult. The command to love one another is new because of the kind of love that it is. It's a limitless love. It's an immeasurable love. It's a love that goes on and on and on. It is not a selfish love that says, give me what I want if you love me. There's that kind of love in the world, isn't there? But this isn't what he's talking about. I want us to notice tonight as we begin to understand exactly this new commandment and and what it entails, the scope of it, we're going to notice first, this is our first point, this kind of love that Christ was commanding is a sacrificing love. It's a sacrificing love. Where does this kind of sacrificing love have its roots? Where is it first learned? What's learned in the family? It's learned in the family. That is the first place that any person ever is introduced or experiences a sacrificing love. If one does not have the kind of love that he or she ought to have for family, how can we demonstrate the love that we ought to have for our Father in Heaven? How can we demonstrate a love for someone who hates us if we cannot even demonstrate the proper love toward those who do love us, or those who should love us. In his Roman letter, Paul pointed out a laundry list, so to speak, of terrible sins that was to be avoided. Sins that the the Gentiles had engaged in, and he condemned those. He says, Romans 131, without understanding... He names covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful. Without natural natural affection includes that family type love that we ought to have, that ought to be naturally there. A mother has a child, she has a bond with that child that should never be able to be broken. Is it broken from time to time? Absolutely. A child should have an affection toward his or her parents, that should never be broken. It ought to just naturally be there. That's the way God has designed us. I want us to notice what Paul commanded Ephesians 5, 25. He said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. What kind of love is that? That's a natural affection love that ought to exist within the family unit. 
I don't know very many parents who would not willingly give their lives for their children. I don't know if I know any set of parents that would not give their lives for their children. And the Master sees that same potential in each of us. Christians are the embodiment of the mind of Jesus. Notice what Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16. He says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We can understand exactly what Christ wants for us. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to live the way He wants us to live. We're to carry out our interactions with each other the way He wants us to carry that out. Let's listen to the admonishment of Paul, Philippians 4 verse 8, a very common verse that we know. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, he says, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. That's the mind of Christ. That's what we are to have. It is so easy to look at even a group of people and to have hate fostered in our hearts. Let's just talk about an immediate example that our nation as a whole faces today. Radical Islam, terrorist activity in our very nation. There are groups of people who would love for all of us to be killed. How do we go about loving those people? If we can't have a natural affection in our family, a sacrificing love within our family, how are we ever going to love someone who hates us? It's an impossibility, isn't it? It just can't happen. But shouldn't family love come easy? Well, it ought to. That's why we are trained in the family. The very first experience that we have with parents are our earthly parents, right? And then that should translate to a great respect for our Heavenly Father. If we can't respect our earthly parents... If we can't love our mothers and our fathers, how in the world are we going to love someone that we can't see or feel or touch? How are we going to do that? It's not possible. See, this kind of love that Jesus is describing is rooted in the family. If we're going to be able to have that, we ought to have it in the family. We better have it if we're going to have a great love for our Heavenly Father. A great problem arises when we do not grow properly in our love. It presents a great problem. Notice what Paul warned Romans 5, 7 through 8. He said, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When our love grows and it matures, it will become a sacrificing love. That's what God expects from us. He has never asked us to do one single thing that we could not do. And He expects our love to grow and to mature. And when that happens, the world will see that we have been trained within the family. And they can identify the faithful, right? That's what Jesus said. If you love each other, the way I have loved you, the world will know that you are mine. And the world will see that in the faithful. 
Isn't it a common occurrence to see a Christian put others before themselves? I think that's a common occurrence. We see it a lot. We see it in our own congregation here. The story is told about a Christian doctor who went to China many years ago and and worked amongst the native peoples there and he cared for the sick and he built a hospital and he just dedicated years upon years upon years of his life to those people and by doing that he had the opportunity to teach the gospel. But one day an army marched into town and destroyed the whole village, destroyed the hospital, destroyed all of the work that he had dedicated his life to for so many years. And even though he was treated with hatefulness, and he was scorned, and he was mistreated, he followed that army and he treated their wounded. He treated their sick. And his acts of selfless kindness came to the attention of the leader of that army. And then he asked his wife. The general asked his wife, said, why does this man do that? His wife responded, there can only be one reason for that. He must be a Christian. And he said, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I would like to be one. What about that? See, our actions in this life demonstrate... That's what Jesus was talking about. He says, this is a new commandment. You love each other like I loved you. And we see that in this example. See, the old example was love your neighbor, give them so many opportunities to... Uh, come and apologize for something that they've done to you, but then after that, you're finished with them. See, this is a new commandment. Not that we're not to love each other. We've always been commanded to do that, but it's the scope of the love. It's to love like Christ loved us. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Christ's commandment was a new commandment because it was a sacrificing commandment, but it was a new commandment also because it is a purifying commandment. That's our second point. It purifies because it is cleansing. His love has cleansed us, right? Let's return to Paul as he explained why husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Notice Ephesians 5, 26-27. He said that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. His great love is the source of our cleansing, right? If without that great love, remember, love each other like I have loved you, without that great love there would have been no sacrifice. There would have been no abiding among people in the form of a man. Being a man, living as a man, the Christian has had his or her sins cleansed because of Christ's love for us. Now he explained to his disciples just exactly how that translated into cleansing. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 27 through 28, he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying this, Drink ye all of it, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. How did Christ love us? He gave Himself. He died for us each individually. And how are we to love? The way that He loves us. 
That's the way a husband is to love his wife, right? I've probably mentioned this, but I've done a lot of premarital counseling and marital counseling, and we go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I make the point, I say, Paul spoke to the husband over the course of three verses, or to the wife, rather, over the course of three verses. And then there's about, it's either seven or nine verses that he dedicated to the husband. He doesn't spend that much time on the wife. He spends quite a bit of time on the husband. The husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church and he's to give himself for her. What's the wife to do? Respect her husband, honor her husband, be in subjection to her husband. Tell me the the wife in the world that would not do all that she could to be in subjection to her husband if he loved her like Christ loved the church. And if she is in subjection to Him, then He'll want to love her like Christ loved the church. And she'll want to be in subjection. And He'll want to love her. And she'll want to be in subjection. And He'll want to love her. It's a, it's a never-ending circle, isn't it? See, I, often I read those first three verses and the husband is, boy, he's really excited. He's really excited in agreement with that. And then I say, hold on. Don't be too excited. Let's move on to what your responsibility is. His blood is the cleansing agent that removes sin from our lives, but it would not have been here had Christ not loved us in the way in which He did. To be cleansed, we have to come into contact with that blood. That's just an absolute necessity. Paul told us how to do that. Romans 6, 3 and 4, we're baptized into His blood. We're baptized into His death. We come up out of that water. We're walking in a new life. Before we do that, we must have a working faith, right? We have to have an obedient faith. It's, it's not enough just to understand that Christ is who He said He was. We talked about that this morning in our sermon. The devils believe and tremble. We have to have a working faith. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews 11 verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. Now normally I stop there. But see, there's another part to that verse. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That's an obedient faith. That's a working faith. We have to reject worldliness through repentance, Acts 17 verse 30. We have to turn our back on the world and turn ourselves toward God. The good confession is made in the presence of others, demonstrating our faith in God and letting others know where we stand in accordance with God, Romans 10 verse 10. But see, that doesn't save us. It is our confession unto salvation. There's another step involved. We're immersed in water. That's where we meet Christ's blood. That's where we gain the victory. And then we come up walking in a new life. We have a cleared conscience. That's one of the great benefits of obeying the gospel. Baptism saves us and it clears our conscience. 1 Peter 3, 21. Then we continue to grow in our love and and learn more, and and we perfect our love one for another. What kind of love are we talking about? A love that is a sacrificing love. A love that is a purifying love. One that, just like Christ loved us. Without doubt, we're purified in the love of God because it is a cleansing love. But it is also a caring love. We care for one another. Paul charged the husband to love and to cherish his wife. Why? He says, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, 
but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Ephesians 5.29. Well, what's he talking about? How? What does he mean no one ever hated their own flesh? What's that have to do with another person? What, what does that have to do with our wives? Because we are one flesh. We go back to Genesis chapter 2. Adam said, she's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He says, they're to leave father and mother, they're to cleave together, the two become one. One how? They don't morph into one body, they become one in purpose. They become one in belief, they become one in in execution of life. Become one, inseparable. That word, uh, joined together, has the indication of glued, hard, and fast. One of the greatest things in my mind that has ever been invented is liquid nails. I love that stuff. It can fix and repair anything. You know what? When you put some liquid nails in between two pieces of wood, it's there. It's not going anywhere. You just about have to break the wood apart to get it apart. That's the idea of becoming one. This joined together, locked together, Glued hard and fast. Paul commanded that. And God has seen our needs in this life. And the Christian is to follow that example. Because of His great love for us, He has seen to our needs. James said this, James 2, 14-18. It just makes sense when we read what James says. He asks, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now, to finish that thought, can faith alone save him? That's what James is talking about. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. He said, Show me thy faith without thy works. He said, I'll show you my faith with my works. Now, what does he, what's he talking about? We have to have action. That's an obedient action, isn't it? We're to help those around us. We're to provide for those in need. Now, we have to be careful. Does that mean that, that everyone that comes along and, and they say they're down on their luck and we just go ahead and provide for them food and Lodging and things. No, not unless they're helping themselves. We don't waste the Lord's money. If a person will not help himself, then we're not to help them. Notice what Paul commanded. He, he, this wasn't just a good idea. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 10, he said that if any would not work, neither should he eat. If you won't work, if you don't want to provide for yourself, you're going to be hungry, right? He also said this, 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. We have to work. We have to, to provide for ourselves, but the idea is we help those who are in need. Those who are not able to provide for themselves, or perhaps that they're trying and they're just simply having a difficult time in this life, are we to help them? especially Christians, we are, especially those of the household of faith were to help them. We can help all men. Galatians chapter 6, they don't have to be Christians. But we are to especially help the faithful. 
but they have to be helping themselves. As I looked at this and I was trying to understand this idea of caring and how God has provided for us, and that's our example, I was relieved to come to the understanding that we are to provide for our families, but that doesn't mean we're required to provide an unlimited amount of finances for our families, right? Most of us are not able to do that, or at least not in a position to do it very well, especially when we began our families, right? But that means we're to strive and we're to work hard and we're to provide what we need to provide. I can remember when Nicole and I first started out, we didn't have very much of an entertainment budget. So our entertainment was we would we would sit up at night, pretty late sometimes, and, and play cards. I taught her how to play rummy. I had to quit playing with her after she began to cheat me so badly. You know, no, no one on the third hand becomes an expert at rummy. But that's what we did. It's okay not to have a lot of money, but it's not okay to, to not provide for our family. See, we learned that from God. We learn it from His love. He has provided for us everything that we need. And it was like that from the very beginning. Notice what Adam had in this world. He had a beautiful place to live. He had all the necessary food that he needed to eat. He had a wife and he had work. He had work. He was to dress and keep the garden. He wasn't just put in a a place of paradise and then just, hey, enjoy it. There had to be work that needed to be accomplished. The love Jesus spoke about is a caring love that puts others before self. It really, it bothers me. I see families and I have some people in my family that uh, aren't very caring toward members of their very their, their immediate family. And they, they like to be first. They like to be prominent within the family. They like everyone caring for them, catering for them. They want to go through... Uh, the, the food line. I don't know how most people, how, how uh, everybody does it at home, but we'll, we leave, usually leave our food on the stove. and We'll just get a plate of it and then we'll go sit down. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back, but I go last at my house. I don't do that because we have a shortage of food. We're not. God has blessed us. We don't have a shortage of food. And I'm not saying that you have to go last at home. But I just do that because I think... I'm trying to demonstrate toward my family in just that one way that I love them. The new love, the new commandment was new because of it being a sacrificing love. It was a purifying love. But I want us to notice our final point tonight. This commandment was new because this love was a unifying love. It was a unifying love. If we embrace His love, we can all become members of His one body, the church that He established. Let's go back to Ephesus again and listen to Paul continue his sermon. Ephesians 5, 30-32 For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Again, Paul goes back to this very special relationship between husband and wife. And he is describing the relationship of the church with Christ in that sense. See, we understand that very precious 
relationship of husband and wife, and that helps us to understand the relationship between us as members of His church and Christ. No longer would followers of God be separated by nationality, by tribe, or by anything else. See, it wasn't the kind of love that unified the world at that time. Now, hey, were people responsible to follow after what God said? Absolutely. Were they responsible to seek out God's commandments and, and do what He asked? Absolutely. It didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile or, or whatever you were. But this love is so much greater in scope. It tore down the wall of partition. It got rid of the, the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Isaiah prophesied that that would happen. Notice Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3. The great prophet said, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. He's talking about the church that was established by Christ. That's the Lord's house. Do you remember when Paul told Timothy he ought to know how to behave himself in the Lord's house within the church? The prophet continues, And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, that is an all-encompassing love. That love is extended to every single person that lives. And we're to imitate that love. On the day of Pentecost, when we read that great sermon that Paul or Peter preached, and we, we noticed that statement that we're so familiar with, Acts 2, 38 and 39, and, and Peter explains, he answers their question, what shall we do? He says, repent, be baptized. He explained that it was for the remission of sins, and if you do that, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He said, but this promise isn't just to you. He said it is to those who are far off also. Who's that? The Gentiles, that goes right along with what Isaiah said. And thankfully for us, because that's what we are, Gentiles, we have that love extended to us. It's a unifying love. It doesn't matter what nationality, what race, what ethnicity we are. And about 3,000 that day formed the very first church of Christ. Acts 2 verse 47. Later Paul would emphasize Christ's statement, Upon this rock I will build my church, found in Matthew 16, 18, when he said this, found in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. He said there is one body. One body. Well, what's the body? Well, according to Paul in Colossians 1, 18, the body and the church are the same. The body, he says, which is the church. There's only one church because there's only one body. There's one spirit even as you are called in one hope of your calling. We only have one hope. There's only one calling. He said there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. He says one God and Father of all who is above all and through all. He says and in you all. The Father is in us. Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And His love is a unifying love. And that's exactly what Jesus prayed for when He spoke to the Father, John 17, 21. When we become a part of the one body, we have a responsibility to build up that one body. We have to do that. We have to get busy, right? 
Have you ever noticed that Christianity is not a spectator sport? Have you ever noticed that worship is not a spectator activity? We're not to come in and watch other people worship. We are to participate in worship. We're to pray. We're to sing. We're to learn through preaching what God wants us to do. We're to observe the Lord's Supper. We're to give of our means. It's not a spectator sport. And when one Christian or many Christians fail to fulfill their obligation, the body cannot be what it otherwise could be. So we need to think about that, don't we? I like to kind of think about it this way. The body being unified in the love of God, this unifying love, it's much like a a football team. There are 11 different athletes assigned 11 different responsibilities. In each one of those 11, they must carry out that responsibility or our football team is not going to be what it could be. What about armies composed of thousands of men and women from all different walks of life, but they have one objective, to protect and to win, right? That's what the military does. What about a band? has multiple instruments. But, though there are multiple instruments producing an array of different sounds, there is only one composition from which that harmony is taken. That's unifying. And that is the church. We build together or we fall apart. Lord Nelson of England was about to enter into an important battle. And he had gotten news that two of his very top officers were arguing about something. They were uh, demonstrating hatred for one another over a disagreement that they were having. So he called them in and he said, Gentlemen, give me your hands. And they extended their hands and and he grasped their hands and, and he squeezed firmly and he said, Remember this one thing. The enemy is out there. The enemy's not in here. Might we disagree on some things? Well, I would be shocked and amazed if I thought 70 or 80 people could come together and spend so much time together and not have a disagreement or two. Why? Because we're people. And besides that, we don't have to agree on everything. There there is an array of, of opinion, an array of different things that are expedient or not expedient. We don't have to agree on all those things. We have to agree on the doctrine. We have to agree on the commandments. The love of God, or the love that God wants for His for His church, it's a tough, everlasting love. God's love, this unifying love, doesn't get its feelings hurt every time some little thing happens. We don't want that. It gives, it, it uplifts, it cares, it builds, it unites. We overlook... Small things that are insignificant. Why? Because it's a unifying love. It's a love that God wants us to have. I think the psalmist said it best when he said this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. When Jesus said, love one another, He had something very specific in mind. He had in mind, a love that was sacrificing, a love that was purifying, and a love that was unifying. That's what He wanted. We can do that. And when we do that, that love will accomplish many things. It will reflect Christ in our lives. 
It will complete the law. It can result in salvation. It is the evidence of Christianity. It is a demanded commandment. It is a response to God's love for us. And it is available right now. If you never obeyed the gospel, you truly don't understand how great God's love is for us. It's a love that demonstrates His own Son being given in sacrifice for each of us, dying willingly, giving Himself to a hateful crowd, letting them murder Him upon the cross. He could have come down from the cross. He brought a man out of the grave that had been in there for four days. Don't think that He could not come down off of a cross made from the things He created. The nails didn't keep Him there. His great love kept Him there. And we are to mimic that love. Love each other as I have loved you. We talked about how you do that. Faith, repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. That's what gets us to heaven. And all along the way, we're learning how to grow in our love and knowledge of what God wants us to do. If you've left God, you've, you've fallen away. And that happens in this life. We become a little distracted at times. That doesn't mean that we're terrible people. That simply means that we're lost. That we need to be saved. We need to come back. doesn't mean we're immoral in any way. It means we've taken our eyes off of the target, off of the goal. If you find yourself in that situation, repent of the things in your life. Come back. Ask God for your forgiveness. We'll pray with you and for you. If you have need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.